out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of Native Records, which was formed in the mid-80s by the one and only Kevin Donahue. Um, this is the interview. It's a fascinating one, and um, yes, Native Records, for those who might be excited, well, should be excited, actually, they sign such people as the Darling Buds, the Snapdragons, as well as Screaming, che- <laughs> Screaming Trees, and at one stage even had Nine Inch Nails on their books. But anyway, look, Kevin's going to explain everything in the interview, so I won't bore you anymore. And um, so after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Kevin, it's over to you. Probably the same period, to be fair. Um, But my first memory is people like... um, Just trying to remember. It's... uh, You know, know, I mean, when I... I I lived in America until I was 11. Right. So, and... Because we were kind of English living in America, we didn't really become part of the culture. So I was brought up on on a lot of the... I was stuck in front of the television. Right. And watched a lot of uh, really early cartoons. And the music from that was something that really did stick with me. But when we moved back to England, it was really that kind of... uh, yeah, I remember you. Period. You know what I mean? Uh, Frank Sin- not Frank Sinatra. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the the singer. But it was you know swinging London, the sixties. Uh, the Beatles were brilliant. You know, uh, bands like the Monkeys. Yes, the Monkeys, of course. Yes, because that was there, but, wasn't it? Yeah, because that was the first time you really saw them on a weekly basis. Yeah, right. Monkey's television show was really a huge thing. Um, but it was probably, you know, I started getting into music in the 70s. And uh, so I think the first record I ever had was uh, Black Sabbath. Was it Paranoid? Yeah, the, the Black, Sabbath, Black Sabbath album. Oh, with paranoid on it, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so that was the first record I ever had, and then I, I was really into bands like Deep Purple, and yes, uh, but at the same time, there was you know Gary Glitter, T Rex, Mark Bolan, you know the Sweet Slade. God, classics, aren't they? They are all classics. <laughs> To still to um, this day, yeah. Whereabouts, um, in, whereabouts in America had you, were you in for those first eleven years? Um, we moved to Canada. My, my dad, my dad went to work there, and and, and uh, I we followed when I was two. Right, and uh, we lived uh, in Montreal in Canada, and then Vancouver, and then we moved to Seattle. And so we were in Seattle, yeah, during, yeah. That's one of the early 
you know, I learned to play baseball in Seattle. Nice. Oh, uh, that's very kind of in the This would have been the 60s. So he was obviously a bit of a mover and a shaker. Well, uh, he was. I mean, he, you know, he, he was well known within his industry. Um, but I don't think it was unusual, you know, because you know, my, my uncle lived in South Africa. Yeah, my other uncle lived in Gibraltar. Yeah, so I don't know if it's part of the Irish tradition of moving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, they, uh, yeah, they, they all moved away and then all came back, which was kind of weird. <laughs> well, that's kind of like a homing pigeon. So were you based in Sheffield when you came back? Yes, my dad came back and he, he, he got a job at, at uh, British Steel, which were obviously, you know, based in Sheffield at the time. Nice. Uh, we moved to Sheffield and uh, that was, yeah, my formative years were in that sort of Sheffield, South Yorkshire area. Yeah. And were, and were you quite obsessed with music at that stage, you know, during those kind of teens uh, in the 70s? Yeah, because I, I used to spend a lot of time on my own as a child. So, yeah, I mean, I, by the time I was 11, I'd, I was, now by the time I was 12, I, I was, I'd been the new boy in five schools. Yes, that's quite tricky, I could imagine. Yeah. Right, so I was a little bit of a loner uh, and, you know, a bit of a train spotter, yeah, and made my own entertainment and music was one of the things that I you know was really into and had an affinity with and uh found that I was accepted by other people if I yeah if you like certain bands you you got yeah people used to walk around carrying albums on the 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 shoulder in those days do you know what I mean yes the tribal the tribal quality of music I do remember sort of because I grew up in the countryside in East Anglia and um status you know metal and raw rock and status quo especially status quo were really the gods you know you could not say anything about status quo without getting beaten up I just remember the the the, the passion of the quo fan you know was was quite something which yeah I joined a band when I was 14 uh a friend of mine was a really good guitar player and he said, come round. And, and he had a bass guitar and he said, you can learn to play bass. Right? <laughs> and yeah, just do this. And we yeah, instantly learned to play, you know, uh, Paranoid and Smoke on the Water. Do you know what I mean? Which have to be the two easiest bass lines in the world. Yeah. yeah. There are actually only two notes in the yeah. uh, So that was... Uh, and I ended up playing in the band when I was still at school. And it was only, you know, what today would be called covers band. Mm-hmm. But we did all those, you know, we did like a lot of the, you know, the 60s, 50s, 60s classics, you know, the Chuck Berry things. But we also did a huge amount of status quo songs. <laughs> and we did... Uh, yeah, Rory Gallagher songs and Status Quo and, and uh, Queen's Clearwater Revival and all that, all that kind of rock. Yes. Classic yeah, we weren't rock. very good, but because we were doing a, a rough kind of music, we got away with it, if you know what I mean. People accepted it for, for what it was. Uh, 
And that's really when music became, you know, the dominant force for me, yeah. Yeah, well, quite. And did punk at all kind of, because I was a bit too young for punk, so I have to confess it. Yeah, and also you was, couldn't, during that period, you couldn't just kind of go, oh, I want to hear the Sex Pistols, because actually there was just no way of accessing music unless you were going to save up lots of money and then spend 80p on a yeah. single. So it wasn't that easy. I, I think I'd been years before I actually heard the record. Uh, I ended up in London um, playing in the band called Chelsea. Who, did you uh, my god yeah. Chelsea who I were what I would call a third rate punk band at the time <laughs> it was a strange experience it was a great experience in that I met a lot of people who became movers and shakers right um during the sort of 70s and 80s uh but at the particular moment in time it was very weird because we didn't do any gigs during the period I was one of the 15 million bass players in that band, right? We didn't do any gigs. We, I think we only did one rehearsal. Yeah. I don't think I ever met the drummer. I think the drummer that I met left and there was a new drummer. And it's like, I don't think we ever met. You know, it was absolutely not the way, you know, I'd been working and living as a musician. Yeah. So, Go into a band who were famous and never did a gig and just went to, you know, parties to lig and eat. And we used to go to all these press launch music parties just to eat. Nice. And, and score drugs. Uh, well, I wasn't really into drugs. It's one of those things I've always kind of avoided. So what know? period was your Chelsea book time? Uh... It's got to be 78. Right. Because yeah. I did an interview quite recently with Nick Austin, who's now the current guitarist. And I think he joined probably a bit after that, really. I can't remember when he actually said. I wasn't, I was paying attention. But um, yeah, yeah he, he, but funny enough, he now lives in Lowestoft. So well, I, I think it's funny because. I, I would say, and I, I stayed with the band for maybe three months, uh, four months, and, and got bored. And I came back to Sheffield and joined a band called 2.3, who were also yeah, the first punk band in Sheffield. Oh. <laughs> well, God, I'm, I'm glad you're going through the punk bands. You must have been still so young. Oh, uh, well, I, I was, what, 18, 19? Okay, it's not so young. Yeah, old enough to be in the pub. Yeah, okay. Right. Um, but, yeah, so that that's... And the Sheffield thing at that time was great because 2.3 hung around with um, Cabaret Voltaire and the Human League, right? So we were all big mates, yeah. And yeah, I'm still in touch with people from that period. Right? Yes. And for me, the next thing was really, you know, Phil Oakley took me to the t Human League studio and said, here's a synthesizer because he knew that I could play a little bit of piano right and in those days playing a little bit of piano was like very a rare thing to do everybody <laughs> was guitarist, yeah uh so and he took me into the studio and he just left me there and when 2.3 ended I started my own band uh which was a synth band 
and we did so that took me to about 83. What was your and what was the band's name? It was a band called B Troop. B Troop. And you know, we did quite a few things. There's a couple of albums out there, yeah. All right, because Cherry Red brought a compilation out of the Sheffield sound, didn't it? Cherry Red owned my catalogue, yeah. Uh, They, (laughs) and if you look at that album, uh, which I had to go and buy. Yes, everyone everyone always says that with bitterness, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's like, you know, I'll send you a copy. Well, no, I mean, I'm bitter because A, I wrote part of the foreword in it, right? And B... At least 12 of those tracks on that compilation of 50 titles are either mine or natives. Right. Mm. right. Because Nate, because Cherry Red later, because I signed to Red Rhino and Cherry Red acquired the Red Rhino catalog when Red Rhino went bust. Without my knowledge, I have to tell you, which I was a little bit peeved about. Uh, and then because there was never actually a formal contract between us and Red Rhino, right? And then uh, Cherry Red actually bought Native, you know, 20 years later, which was kind of weird. They do, they do, they do buy everything, don't they, Cherry Red, in the end? Uh, It's a good business model, yeah. And to be fair, you know, they'd been trying to buy Native for a long time, and I I didn't really want to sell. Um, But they came at the right time and, and it was like, you know, yeah, I wasn't very well at that moment and was having to think about the future. Yeah. Uh, and I felt that they would be a good place to curate the label. Yeah, I, I completely understand the curating and the, the sort of archiving must be, you get to that point, don't you, in life, I think. Well, yeah, it's like, well, do you know what, this, you know, when you start a label, it, actually you become almost irrelevant you know it has a life of its own and so i i you know for me it was a decision that i had to then make yeah this is the right time to let go yes i know tricky and and, yeah and i know the people there i've known ian since what 85 yeah Um, so yeah. I mean, to to be fair, because I mean, obviously, I do, you know, speak to quite a few of them a lot. Well, the PR person. And um, yeah, they're always quite nice. And actually, most people who've got you know, their music with them are, are quite happy. I mean, there's one label that, you know, everyone always says, I'd better not say any more about who. Uh, uh, yeah, there, there are. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a music industry. People fall out, you know, the beat. Yeah, you know, if you're in the music industry, you're there because you're a passionate person, mm. and because you've got passionate people, they do fall out. You know, they do. Uh, also, but, or, or in, in the case of a lot of people, they didn't really understand what they were signing, so that was kind of the other problem. Yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah, and I know. I mean, I know Ian, who owns Cherry Red for a long time, but I, I know people like John there who've been there. Yeah, John was the tea boy, and he's gradually taken over as the the catalogue manager. <laughs> and him have been friends for you know 10 years yeah no they're great i mean i I love them and they they brought out you know i'm not because i'm biased but they brought out the c86 as a triple and then they did 87 88 did, yes I did 89 89 and um, and also 90 as well so you know and it was like I wow have, i have a copy of that 
you know and it's it's quite nice and and every month I have a look and think my god what are they releasing this month and it's like oh that's that's pretty impressive I mean their their appetite for sort of putting this together and creating like you said an archiving is is quite phenomenal and they do a very good job they do the booklet they do lots of little bits and pieces I mean it's not it doesn't feel like they're just grabbing a bit of quick cash and then not caring I mean officially they they pursued native for probably seven years right they wined and dined you uh they did buy me uh, you know probably an omelet once <laughs> <laughs> nice in a cafe in somewhere in east london i wouldn't call it wine and dine <laughs> <laughs> omelet yeah with that 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 sort of slightly moment that moment where they go i'll pick up the bill oh my god this is this is definitely yeah. this is what i've read about in the movies with robert's martin scorsese in some sort of new york mafia film now look so as the 80s progressed well as the as, as we had the punk period and you had that moment and then 2.3 then as the 80s progressed you know we had the old you know factory in power of 79 there was that sort of post-punk period and then then indie started to sort of raise its head there'd been echo and the bunny men and and julian cope simple minds you too but then the smiths appeared so what was your kind of 80s kind of trajectory um. Well, I was still playing in the band until you know until about eighty-two, uh, and then I got a job at RCA, and that really was interesting because I was at RCA sort of from eighty-two to eighty-five, and I was very much in you know people like Tony from Red Rhino, who's labelled my band were signed to right were big friends so i knew all about the indie scene but i was also in the middle of bedford streets and the music industry mm -hmm. right all the old rca as it was just just as it got bought by bmg right and so the whole idea of this is a business you know for me the indie labels were a movement, whereas RCA was an international business. And RCA England was really the base for the Americans and the stepping stone to Europe. That was the, how, how it was seen. It's, it all became about shifting units and sales meetings and marketing meetings and yeah, Elvis has died. We need to sell a load of records. <laughs> I, su I suppose you're also looking at trends, aren't you? Which is the next band who... You know what? No. I, I mean, RCA were, at that time, were really dreadful. They had no new bands. Everything was just coming from the States. All right. So uh, we, we ended up with uh, RCA. They had two teams. So they duplicated every single job, right? One team dealt with RCA product and the other team dealt with um, associated product, it was called, which basically means distributed product. And I was on that team and I, so I dealt with uh, Motown. And uh, so during the period we delivered them um, uh, yeah, Stevie Wonder number one and the Lionel Richie number one. And it's the first two number ones they'd had for 10 years. Right? 
uh, and and we dealt with you know I de dealt with bands like the Eurythmics and Hall and Oates and all the bands who basically owned their own product and brought it to di for distribution. Was it a bit like then what Miles Copeland did with A and M? He he sort of said, "Look, I've got this album. There's no cost because it's all done." But do you yeah. kind of want to do it? And they were like, well, I don't have to go to the accountant or the, my boss and say, actually, have you got 100,000? It's like, well, I, all we have to do is put it out there. And it's kind well, of... No, no, right. In the industry, it's not known as a PMD deal. So it's mean production and, and distribution. Right. So it's basically, we'll bring you the master recordings, right? The hours... They, you have the rights to them for a period of time, mm -hmm. right? And you will manufacture and distribute and we'll do an agreed marketing term. And I'll deal with the tours and all that kind of thing. And you just get the records in the shops. Right. And we'll have our own independent uh, radio pluggers and we'll have our own press people. And that's really where, you know, for me, those great labels like Chris Liss, an island came from. They came yes. through that system. In the 70s? Uh, in the 70s, yeah. Right. right. Uh, and, you know, labels like Stiff did exactly the same thing. Mute, Mute tried to do it in the 80s and it all went wrong for them in the late 80s. Um, Was that because of rough trade, though? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a lot of things are because of rough trade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah, and and I know the people at rough trade, and some of them are lovely and some of them are not. Yeah. Uh, and you've just got to be careful and, and, and say, well, rough trade was a shambles. That's the truth of it, right? I remember my first ever meeting with, with rough trade. We spent half an hour deciding where the meeting, in which room the meeting would be. My God, that sounds like the county council. Oh, mate, it was a complete and utter shambles. Right. Halfway through the meeting, one, yeah, a head appears from behind a settee, an old derelict settee. That yeah, yeah, uh, and it's one of the directors, and he's been sleeping on the floor because he'd been out to a gig last the night before, and didn't want to pay for a hotel that is kind of with nell and i really isn't it yeah <laughs> uh stories true stories of you know twenty thousand depeche mode albums being left on the street overnight because they didn't have any room in the warehouse <laughs> were they still there in the morning yeah bloody hell right yeah. but yeah, but yeah, you know, it's like, oh my God, are you joking? Right? That's a lot of cash. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, and that's why those early, those big early labels always had what was known as dual distribution. They had their rough trade, you know, Factory and Mew and 4AD all had dual distribution because they had a deal with rough trade, but they also had to deal with Pinnacle in case one went bust. Right. Was there, from your point of view, was there a feeling that even though it's all very jolly and this is all kind of your honeymoon period, that you could tell that rough trade could be a disaster? Uh, no, because you believe, yeah, it was, 
it was all about the faith of, and the belief of we're going to change the system. Uh, it's a bit like Corbynism, if you if if you follow my meaning. It's like all, all red wedge, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> red wedge was a huge part of it, and and Paul Bauer from Two Point Three was a huge part of red wedge, as was Martin Ware. So yeah, it, you know, we just imported it to London. Yeah. Uh, uh, so um, yeah, it, it, he knew it wasn't good because. You have to look at where it came from. It came from a record shop. And there were, I think there were three people involved in the record shop. And they started distributing other people's records. And then they started their own label. And the minute that got to become successful, the partnership split up. So one guy took the label and the other two took the distribution. And obviously, there's you know, the frightening thing is there was millions of pounds floating around, and there was no accounting system. The VAT com could have closed that place down within minutes. Yeah. Um, there was no export systems. There was no documentation. Yeah. Oh, bring your records around. Oh, just put them there. Well, are you going to sign for them? Oh, well, we don't really do things like that. And it's like, well, how do you know you've got them? Yeah. <laughs> God, I can't believe the Smiths thought Rough Trade was such a good label to buy a sign if this... Well, I'm sure they thought being independent was the right thing to do. Yeah, it was the 80s, wasn't it? Yeah, and, <laughs> and to be fair, Rough Trade went out of their way to break the Smiths. And, you know, for the first time, they started selling into people like WH Smiths, which they'd never had accounts with before. Yeah, as far as you know, the proper industry were concerned, this is just well, it's all those crazy little bands. Yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah, you know, we don't need to stop with that. They don't. Yeah, you know, they only sell two copies. Yeah, you know, why would we bother? Yeah, you know, we've got we the need... Ryan and old Valley. <laughs> yeah, if we need it, we'll get it from Pinnacle. Yeah. All of a sudden, it's like you know, this is one of the biggest bands in the world. You have got to stop them. Yeah. And. And then Rough Trade had to learn about how the major industry worked in that um, you could put yourself at number one in Smiths if you did the right deal with Smiths. Nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you give, you know, give us enough discounts, and you know, the, these, these are the prices that you pay to be in our chart. You know the Smiths chart they used to have in, in the shop every week? Yeah. You paid to be in that chart. Blimey. And you had to discount your stock and it had to be full sale or return. And it was the same with HMV and the same with Virgin and our price and all those little chains that were around during the heyday of, 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 of music. All right. All were on, you know, looking for deals because they were all trying to outsell each other. Oh, yeah, there's only one market and you're trying to undercut it, yeah. Well, I mean, it's like the Mafia, really, wasn't it? Uh, it, it was just, you know, for an industry that had so much money floating around in it, it was really unorganised. Yeah, right. quite. <laughs> and, yeah, and yeah, my first journey into uh, the music industry when I was still in a band was driving around in my little Beetle, buying records from chart return shops. 
that somebody in London had posted out and sent me a list saying, here, go and buy these. Here's 600 pounds. Yeah. My God. Don't, um, don't give us the receipt. Uh, they didn't ask for receipts. They didn't <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, they want. Yeah, you know, they want. Yeah, you know, it's like, what do I do with all these records? And oh, I just throw them away. Yeah, it's like, what? <laughs> you just paid me to go and buy them, and now you want me to throw them away? God. All right. So where, all... What, where, where did you put them? Did you go to charity shops or? Did uh, you... I, you know, I really can't remember. I think we I gave them to people, gave them to mates. Oh, this is yeah. You, know, you go going. Yeah, you, know, you go in the pub and just give them out. You know that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Some people would go, no, we don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh my God. But yeah, that was, you know, that was when I was, uh, before I moved to London. Yeah. God, incredible world. I know, it's incredible. It must have changed so, so much. Yes, so there was the inevitability of rough trade was growing to such a size that it was completely out of control. You know, yes. things happening, yeah. And I know people who lost their houses when the trade went bust. Yeah. They lost everything. Was that artists and other labels or not so much the staff? Uh, right, there was one that. guy who worked for Rough Trade who had his own label that Rough Trade distributed. And yeah, he lost not only his whole label and all the stock, but he'd lost his home because oh, he, he'd used his house as the guarantor for the money to get the records, blah, blah, blah. And he thought he was safe because he actually was a rough trade employee. Yeah, it would have made sense. It wasn't one of those, oh my God, what was I thinking at the time? It, it does, it, yeah. And also, there, there had been a f quite a few good years as well. There had been some good years, and, and everybody thought it was going to go on forever. Uh, but ultimately, uh, uh, well, as, as I've, you know, the Smiths brought down rough trade. They destroyed the industry by becoming too big. Nice. So look, I bet that guy's avoid Bitcoin now, hasn't he? So, so what label was that? It was actually rough, what, what label was what? <laughs> the, the one who lost his house. Oh, uh, I'm not sure I should say. No. <laughs> a, bit, a bit wrong of me, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's fair enough. Yeah, no, I'm just kind of I can tell you later if you'd like. Yeah, when we, when we stop the recording, yeah. fair enough. Uh, yes, uh, but then, but your own journey. So look, you, 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 was, you were in Sheffield, you still hadn't, you, you were in 2.3. A fine mark and model. Then, then, so as the eighties was progressing, and and you obviously, when did you start thinking? Actually, I want to start my own label. Well, I didn't. I I was working for RCA, and uh, we got I got a phone call uh, on the last week of February, right, saying, uh, "I'm sorry to tell you this, but you've made been made redundant with immediate effect." Mm. Right, here's some money, go away. Uh, so I sat down and thought, okay, that's in. I, I actually laughed because it was kind of, you could see the writing was coming. Yeah, you know, it's like you've got, yeah, you know, you've just been taken over by BMG. 
mm-hmm. you've got you've got two of everything. Yeah, the accountants are all over the place. They're just going to get rid of one of everything and, and still have the same organisation. Yeah. Right, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, and uh, so it was kind of weird, and I'd actually was looking at buying some property and I'd just put a deposit down. And the week before, two, 10 days before, I'd actually said to them, there won't be any problems, will there? Because I'm going to do this. And they actually wrote to me and said, there will not be any problems. And then two weeks later, you know. So they actually gave me all that money back. Blimey. All right. I mean, I have to say they were very generous and fair about it. If you consider losing your job, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. All right. But they, they, you know, they, they didn't argue at all. All right. Um, but what, you know, one of the things you learn is that to these people, money is nothing. It is a tool. To you and I, money puts food on the table. Mm-hmm. To these people, it's, it's not their money. And B, they have so much of it. And if they don't spend it, they have to send it back to America. Yes. And then get their budgets cut for next year. Yeah. yeah. It's all kind of council accounting type you know, ideology. And it's like, yeah, we, we better spend this quick. Yeah, new furniture. Which is, which is why you know, there was always that feeding frenzy sort of in March to sign any band that moved. Just <laughs> right. rather than send the money back. Yeah, no, it looks bad, doesn't it? It looks like you're lacking ambition. Yeah. So, so it was kind of weird, um, but yeah. So uh, I'd just been made redundant, and I sat down, and, and and I didn't know. Yeah, it's like okay, well, you know, B Troop was over, uh, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I decided that I'd start a studio because I actually had a studio in my own house. Right, so I decided that I would start a studio. So I, 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 and I went to see a friend of mine who sold studio equipment and said, look, give me some prices on these things and this and this and this. And he says, why? Well, I'm going to, he says, there's another guy starting a studio, you know, like within miles of you, Kevin. Why don't you two get together? And we did. And between us, we started a studio called Music Factory, which was just outside of Sheffield in a place called Rotherham. Oh, yeah. And they went on to have things like Jive Bunny and that kind of thing. And it was really weird because I I went on holiday. So I worked there for a year and and lots of bands were coming in. And I'm going, oh, this is a good band. They should get a deal. right? And they're going, well, you know, where are we going to get a deal from, man? Yeah. And it's like, well, Come speak to Red Rhino. They're, they're looking for bands all the time. And so I was getting to know all these good bands who were coming in the studio and making decent records. And I rang my friend Tony, who Tony Kay, who ran Red Rhino, who owned Red Rhino, uh, and said, uh, I've got all these things. Can I start a label? And he said, yeah. And it, the whole deal took 30 seconds. It simply was, you know, I want to start a label. Great. 
Fantastic. And within three months, I got five records out. Bloody hell, you moved fast. That was, um, yes, because were, were you sort of picking up on the single, apart from Rough Trade, because there was being creation records at the start, didn't they? And I think, was Vindaloo Records also running that time and the pink label? There were, seriously, at that moment in time, there were probably 2,000 independent labels in the UK. Yeah, Bax Records. Yeah. Yeah, so, no, yeah, but Bax and Red Rhino were the major players. As far as the Indian concerned, Mutes, Backs, Rough Trade, Four AD were all the major players, but there were two thousand other small labels, right? most of which probably only ever put out one record. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. But when you went to Rough Trade's warehouses, I mean, they were just like walking into a fridge full of food. Yeah, it's just there forever. Row and row and row of stock. Yeah, and it's like, hmm, that's a problem. You're not selling enough product if you're carrying that much stock. Yeah, it's a lot of um, dead capital, isn't it? Yeah, a lot, yeah. Uh, but it's all to do with the cost of, you know, if you make this much, the records are half price. So you, have, you end up over manufacturing just to get the price right. Yes, we did that publish in the book once. It's like, you know, this costs X amount for 500, but a little bit more, you can have a thousand, and your brain goes, perhaps we sell a thousand, and it's the five, that extra 500 that sits under your bed until you put it all in the recent yeah. bin one day because you've just had That's enough. Exactly, it's, it's the exactly, yeah, exact same model, right? Um, because ultimately it is printing. Yeah, they yeah. are printing vinyl instead of paper, right? So, um, yeah, so we, so I was working in the studio and, and you know, I was the sound engineer and producing some local bands and, and decided to start the label. And then I went on holiday. I just got married. So we went on honeymoon and we came back and I found that I was no longer part of the, the company. The, the studio? Studio, yeah. Oh, blimey. How did and it's happen? like, okay, how did that happen? How right? did that happen? Well, they uh, they owned more shares than I did. God. Of the limited company. And again, it was all amicable. You know, once, you, know, once you get over the, the panic, it, it actually worked out well. Um, you know, they said, we will pay you back everything you've invested. Uh, I could have done it with it in a chunk, but... Yeah, you know, it took them two years, right? But they did you did pay. you have any idea that was going to be the case? No, none at all. But, but it was all down to the fact that they didn't like bands, right? They didn't like bands coming into the studio, and it's like, well, how can you run a studio without having bands in? Oh, and so, well, unbeknown to me, they invented this thing called Jive Bunny. Nice. Mm. And they wanted to go down that route, and I'm really pleased I wasn't involved. Nice. I mean, they made millions, but they got totally ripped off because they got no idea how the industry worked, uh, and ended up with nothing. And I start came out with native, so I'm not yeah. that unhappy. <laughs> we could we could say it's karma. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, 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 you know, sometimes these things do work out. And 
you know, that was one of the times it did, you know. I'm still friends with the people, you know. We're not mates, but I'm still on speaking terms. Yes. God, it's a cutthroat world. Things are moving fast, though, aren't they? Because in the 80s, I suppose I put indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87. God, I'm going to go back to the Smiths, aren't I? Because that's the years of the Smiths. And there was definitely a, a feeling. There was like bands like the June Brides, you know, the go-betweens, the Wedding Present. You yeah. know, I mean, the C86, there was, you know, all these bands. But most of them, you know, as you realise, had probably one good album, possibly two. There wasn't really a third album. And, you know, I've done interviews with various people, and, you know, like from the mighty Lemon Drops to the Primitives, and it was a bit like no one really wanted their, the fifth. I worked with all those bands because when I started the label, I realised that I was in Red Rhino and I heard someone selling my first single into a shop and his sales pitch was no i've never heard them either no i wouldn't bother with that one and i came out of that room going that's the future of my label right so i thought i have to do something so i actually started my own marketing company based exactly on the model of rca all right, so we did press and we did radio and we did sales into the shops, telesales, you know, employed reps. And we worked all those bands you just mentioned, the June Brides, the Wedding Present, Primitives, you know, the whole of the Mute catalogue. Uh, we worked everybody apart from Rough Trade Records who had a separate deal with Warner Brothers. Right. For that service. All right. So we were bringing that kind of professional service. And that's one of the reasons that Native grew so quickly from being a bedroom label to employing 16 people within probably 18 months, right? Because, you know, we knew how to do it. Yeah. Right. Um, but yes, the whole indie trade was... The problem you got is that the majors had learned that the indie records were selling, especially when the Smiths started charting and the wedding present and bands like that started to chart. So the majors just went, well, they're doing the A&R for us. We'll let them break a band. And when it, that band is broken, we'll go and steal them. Mm. Because we've got more money than they could ever get. And it did, and that's when you know bands started to be given stupid advances, right? A quarter of a million pounds. Do you know what I mean? Uh, for a band that have released one single. Yes. And yeah, and that's when the whole industry got into that kind of frenzy. And, and the ultimately it was the downfall because in order to sustain the growth of the independent sector. They had to keep their own bands. But in order to keep their own bands, they had to pay more and more and more. Whereas previously, they'd never had to give advances. Now they were having to compete with the majors. Yes. That's a disaster, isn't it, really? Because what I realised that, that, that in that period, well, there were several things. There was the gatekeepers. You had three weekly music papers and Record Mirror. Then you had John Peel. And every city and town has, has an alternative indie night, don't they? You know, so all these bands, you know, they, they can one minute yeah. be in their bedroom, 12 months learning the thing. Suddenly it's like John Peel, John Peel session, album. 
quick tour of 10 dates around the country and, and you're suddenly, you know, it's, it's, quite, it's quite a quick, you know, rocket, isn't it? You know, that's, that's what I've learned. It is, uh, you know, and people say that to me about Paul, but it's like, well, actually, you know, I've known Jarvis since the late 70s and... No, that was yeah, a slow one, wasn't it? <laughs> It, it took him ten years to have an overnight success. Yeah. Yes, yes, he was. He was. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a strange one, really. But then I've also realised, you know, with that kind of the indie five year, the Smiths basically is that then you know things change. That band breaks up, ecstasy comes along. I mean, this is really simplistic. But then the next wave of sixteen to eighteen year olds, they want their band. They don't really want someone that's been around knocking about, and they're str- yeah. struggling to get their third or fourth album because it's frankly. They want to discover, as we all want to discover, that new band, and that's that's why I always think record companies must be a bit strange. Because, as Dave Newton said from the the Mighty Lemon Drops, he said no one wanted the sixth or fifth, you know, Mighty Lemon Drops album, you know, no one. And and the guy from the Primitives, and I think they must have signed to RCA. And I said, well, why did you break up? He said, well, the fans didn't want to know us, which is <laughs> bad enough. The press didn't even want to be bothered with us anymore. It's like, well, we were just sitting there going, well, we've had our day, haven't we? And we let's just say goodbye. It's, yeah, it's your 15 minutes, you know. And uh, yeah, I mean, lots of bands went through that stage. You know, it's like, yeah, uh, you, you get to the point where you, you want, you know, does the band have legs anymore? And the other thing is that the the major labels are very ruthless about this because they look at their contract and they go, okay, the first two contracts, you know, they stack up an, a deal in such a way that, you know, over the next seven albums, you will earn two million pounds. You'll get 50,000 for the first, 75 for the second. Yeah, but if you, you know, but your eighth album, you get like, you know, a million, right? So they get to the third album and it's like, okay, now we've got to start paying real cash, right? Do we want to keep them? Or should we let them go, drop the band, let somebody else pick them up and sit on the catalogue? Right? A dead Elvis is worth a lot of money. (laughs) Now, mate, I've heard people say it. Yes. And I've also heard them, um, you know, uh, we signed, you know, uh, one of the UK, but well, allegedly one of the UK's top A&R men during the 80s turned around to me and said, we signed 12 bands, we released 12 singles a month. The problem is we don't know which one's going to be a success. But the one that is will pay for all the others. Right? It's like, yeah. And I came out of that meeting going, that is the shit on the wall approach to music. If we throw enough, it will stick. Mm. All right? And it's like, if I released 12 bands a month, I would know which four were going to be hits. I'd expect them all to be hits. Why would you do it if you didn't think it was going to be good enough? <laughs> yes. Is it because they were just not that close to the music? Uh, yeah, they weren't that close to the music uh, and they weren't that close to 
it wasn't their money. It wasn't their money. No, that does help, doesn't it, really? Yeah. You can not care about a lot of things if you're not financially involved. Yeah, I mean, I've had people say to me, oh, well, we'll sign to you, but we want a 10 grand advance. It's like, where do you think I'm going to get 10 grand from to give to you? Yeah. And I'll go to the bank and say, these four guys who yeah, haven't got jobs and you know, and don't really even have any gear have got a couple of good songs. Can I have 10 grand, please? Yeah. But then a few years later, Flowered Up got a lot of money to make an album, didn't they? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was one of those situations where yeah, as a small label, it was like that would have taken us completely out of our growth pattern and everything would have been then on one band. Right, and if that band failed, we were fucked. And that's exactly what happened to Rough Trade and the Smiths. They bought, yeah, Rough Trade bought the Smiths out of it, yeah, stopped them going to EMI. Mm-hmm. By paying them exactly the same amount of money that EMI paid them, offered them. And then, of course, the album didn't come out because the Smiths went into the studio and fell out with each other. Which album was that? The It was the one that took three hours. I can't remember what the name of it was, but it took three years to actually come out. Right? And, you know, during that period of time, the drummer left... Or was sacked, depending on who you speak to. Yeah, the bass player left. Johnny Marr and and Morrissey weren't even talking to each other. Yes, one's yeah. living in Manchester, one's living in LA. Yeah, yeah, it was a tr- it was a tricky one, wasn't it? I remember when Strange Ways came out. That was the last one in '87. I think up to then there'd been various compilations like The World Won't Listen and. Um, well, that's what labels do is when there's no records, they make a compilation quickly, trying right. to get money back in because they just laid out all this money. And of course, Rough Trade didn't have the money to, it wasn't actually their money. Uh, they were laying out, it was the money belonged to all the other indie bands. So it was a bit like a pyramid scheme, wasn't it? Uh, I wouldn't say it was that fraudulent. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't conceived to be fraudulent. No. Right? Uh, no. But it, it was, it had got to a certain point where the Ponzi idea, it's like, yeah, you just can't keep this going. Right. Uh, and it's all right as long as all the records come out on time. But the minute you get something that doesn't happen. And, you know, I mean, I, I yeah. Even native, yeah, you know, we had bands who s- split up in the studio and didn't tell us, right, because they wanted us to bring the record out. Right. Scannies. No, right. Want... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you think, fuck, you know, yeah. And unfortunately, yeah, we did find out and, and, you know, they think we don't talk to the engineers and that kind of thing. And, yeah, and I used to go to as many recording sessions as I could just to make sure it was going okay because you know ultimately I'm paying for this yeah this is mine you know this is me this isn't a corporation right so yeah but yeah that so yeah in reality whilst the Smiths broke the independent trade into 
a position where it could actually affect the charts. And we all thought music was going to change, that you know, we were going to break the monopoly. Uh, ultimately, it did a Corbyn and, and faded away and the whole system fell down. Yeah. So why, so just roughly, why did rough trade on, because the Smiths bring out strange ways, here we come, obviously that sells well, but they, the band breaks up. Why then would rough trade have a problem with their accounts? Uh, it's cash flow. You know, if you give somebody two million pounds and it takes them three years to release the record, yeah, you know, that two million pounds is outside of the, the cash flow system. So you're having to then rob Peter to pay Paul mm. to keep cash flow going along. And sooner or later, that will stumble. That only has to be, you know, you know, a, you know, a million, you know, vinyl goes up, you know, the price of oil goes up, so vinyl goes up. All right. Uh, Black Monday comes along, so people go to the you know, these companies that they let have little bits of money and go, oh, we want all that back, mm -hmm. which means rec other records don't come out. And the whole thing just unravels. Uh, and as I say, I don't think there's, it was a plan, you know, theft, but ultimately, you know, Rough Trade couldn't pay Red Rhino. Because they couldn't pay Red Rhino, Red Rhino went bust. Red Rhino were the second biggest outside of London, outside of Rough yeah. A, they owned most of the accounts outside of London, and B, they was the second largest producer of independent bands. Yes. So the whole thing started to just fall. Uh, and then obviously there was a feeding frenzy to try and, yeah, it's like, oh, Rough Trader Gun Bus, let's steal all their bands. <laughs> if we can get them cheap. And you know, the whole thing really fell to pieces. So that, so that that affected you quite heavily then. Oh yeah, yeah, it, it did me particularly. I mean, uh, Rough Trade, sorry, Red Rhino had what at that time about seventy thousand pounds worth of my stock, right? And they owed me probably about the same in cash. So the sales money that you know for the product we've actually sold that we never got paid for. And then there's the stock that we had, which disappeared. Uh, and, you know, so I'm funding all the marketing. I'm funding the recording. I'm funding the band. But I've got no income. Yeah. So it, it really did hit us, yeah. And, and, and more or less, I don't think the label, you know, we, we felt we, we survived and we felt we'd done well to survive. But ultimately we were never actually the same force again, but the whole industry had gone by then, right? So the opportunity to be the same force had gone. Yes. Right? Uh, but yeah, I mean, the label survived and, uh, <laughs> and strangely, Tony from Rough Trade ended up working for me about 10 years later, <laughs> <laughs> which was like, yeah, I, I used to turn around and look at him at a desk and kill myself laughing because it's like, this is just so weird. Yeah, you were my God and now you work for me. It's like, wow, how weird's that? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So look, one of the bands you signed 
was Nine Inch Nails in 89. Yeah, yes, it was. Uh, I actually have a record, uh, 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 a letter um, from, from CBS turning Nine Inch Nails down. Uh, yeah, well, we, you know, uh, we don't think this band are ever going to go anywhere. So, you know, we'd like to pass on, on this opportunity. And I've got it framed in the toilet. Nice. Yeah. Um, so were you, were you somebody who just went, God, I can, I've got, I've got a good feeling about this band? Uh, a cassette came through the post, right? That came all the way from, yeah, came all the way from Chicago and landed on my desk, right? And realistically, whilst we had the sales rep from the telesales people and the, and the radio people, it was only myself and, uh, uh, and Gina who ran the label. Yeah, you know, we did everything, really. We ran the whole thing. And you know, Gina says, oh, this tape's coming. So I listened to it and I put it on and I thought, I like this. It's not right, but I like it. And so I rang this guy up in Chicago and probably got him out of bed. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, and said, hi, Mike. Yeah, and just went into the spiel. Yeah, I'm from Native. Yeah. Uh, you sent us a cassette. Tell me about what you're doing. And the guy was what would now be called was sofa surfing, you know, and sleeping in studios where he was like, yeah, let me work in the studio, let me sleep in the studio, let me do a bit of work, yeah, let me use the downtime yeah. to make my album. And he did, and, and, uh, but the album was, it's the album that became Petty Hate Machine, but it, it sounded like Depeche Mode. Yeah, and so over the next sort of three, four weeks, you know, we spoke you know, a couple of times a week about how we could make it more, yeah, more individual. Mm. If you just release another Depeche Mode, it's just another Depeche Mode, and you get nowhere, right? So we want. I, want, I wanted him to 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 uh, make the vocals more aggressive and actually introduce guitars, because there weren't any guitars in it. I said, have you thought about bringing some guitars in? And we just talked it through. And ultimately, yeah, everybody was happy, and we signed the band. Uh, and, you know, contracts were signed and everything. Uh, and then within, probably before we'd even got into manufacture, uh, I got a phone call from a guy from TVT Records saying, look, I understand you've signed this band. And I went, yeah, he says, we'd really like to sign it. Was this and the I, first time that's ever happened? It's the first time it ever happened to me, yeah. Right. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. Um, and the threat was that if you don't let us sign it, that will we will take them anyway and there'll be a massive legal battle and you won't be able to win because you're in England and they're in America, right? So it will cost you a fortune. So that's the threat. <laughs> Subtle. Yeah. Uh, the downside, yeah, the upside was, well, I need to think about it 
Yeah, and yeah, you know, it came to the point where it's like I got some interest at Ireland, uh, at Ireland Records, uh, who was somebody you know I always totally admired. You know, it was, you know, it, it was the business model for Native. Um, uh, so we got some interest there. It wasn't massive, but it was, yeah, I like what well, could happen here, right? Um, the album wasn't fully produced yet, so we didn't have a full album to play to people. And I spoke to Trent and I said, so what is, yeah, what do you want to do? Yeah, ultimately, this is your career. What, what do you want? And he said, well, Kev, yeah, I mean, I'd like to stay with you, but they're offering me things that are really, you know, you know, like support tour with David Bowie. Mm. Yeah, can you get me that? And it's like, no, mate, I can't get you a support tour with David Bowie. Yeah. But Darling Buds, no problem. <laughs> Darling Buds, yeah, but at the, at the time, Darling Buds were nobody. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think we'd even signed the Buds at that stage. Yeah. Uh, so it was like, they want. They were going to. They were going to support the Screaming Trees. They wanted to come over and support the Screaming Trees in Europe and that kind of thing. So we got that. Yeah, you know, there were plans, but it was nothing actually concrete. So you know, ultimately it was like, well, if you want to go, I'm prepared to let you go. There's no point getting into a legal argument here. Yeah, you know, it's not why you actually sign bands in the first place. Yeah, you don't sign a band to say, oh, "All right, we'll have a great argument with these." Yeah, yeah. you sign them because you you you, you, know, you want to to do something. Um, so ultimately, it was like, "We'll we'll yeah we'll we'll let you move on if that's what you want." Yeah. Did you get any reward or any payment for that, or was that just? I'm not allowed to tell you. <laughs> but did you laugh? There was a few years ago. There was that documentary about beats you know dr dre and jimmy iovine who has yeah. quite a story about um nine inch nails and tbt um yeah and him, him just being on the phone all the time saying i'm going to sign this band i'm saying you know i never you know i don't know if you've ever met jimmy iovine but um he sounded like a hustler on a different level uh tbt going back to me living in chicago yeah yeah tbt uh, was a company that was around in the 50s that made television tunes. That's what TVT stood for. Oh. And they released commercials and cartoons on record, on coloured vinyl, on little seven-inch coloured vinyl. All right. Uh, you know, so bands like... Uh, yeah, so, so I remember I had uh, uh, a Huckleberry Hound classic yeah on blue vinyl yeah the, the light blue huckleberry hound color vinyl right and i had a yogi bear as well uh, okay boo -boo. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that yeah. was my, yeah and, and and that was tvt right and the old man retired and and the son took over is that steve and mm, wanted to move it in a different direction. Yeah, but, yeah. But he'd already got the money, right? So they were they were a big company, uh, a bit like Telstar were in England. Yeah, that that kind of yeah, not credible but actually really successful. Yeah, right. 
so yeah we 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 came to an accommodation um Trent was happy he wanted to move forward uh and yeah that was just one you know it was a bit of, a bit of pull really it's like yeah if I try and keep him we fall out with the artist and we end up uh probably in a lawsuit and but if we let him go yeah it's it's the best thing to do just let it go yeah there are other bands yeah there are I know. But, but I think we had our influence because we changed the sound so how long, did that, how long did that relationship last with Nine Inch Nails? Probably between four and six months, I'd say. Right. Funny how right. it's a business that changes quickly, isn't it? It moves. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, pretty so we got to the point where we'd book studios, we were going to bring him over to do mastering and that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, we were talking about tours later in that year. We got release dates scheduled. Yeah, it's like if we can finish the album by here, I can have it out by then. Do you know what I mean? We were looking at the September for a release and a tour for October. So it was all yeah, it was all planned. Uh, but yes, it was sometimes you have to learn you're only a little fish. Yeah, that must have felt a bit strange really, having to let go. Like I say, yeah, you have to learn that you're the little fish and the big fish will come along and eat you. Yes, I know. Well, hopefully, hopefully you got a Christmas card with them, you know. Uh, we, yeah, you know, I, I, I have, I, you know, from a historical point of view, you know, we had our input. It, we wouldn't have been able to make Nine Inch Nails the band that they became. No. I don't, yeah, we would have ended, you know, the best result we could have got is moving them through to Ireland. Yeah. That would have been the best result is that we would have signed them, produced the album, and then let Ireland deal with the rest. Which would have meant ultimately we'd have lost the band anyway, uh, you know, but we'd have had maybe two albums out of it. Yeah. Probably the best two as well. Yeah, probably the best two, yeah, because... <laughs> The Nine Inch Nails album. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah. Not, no, that's not. I know. I know what you mean. Even yeah. I, even I start flagging when a band brings out a few more albums. You think it's good, but it's the same as you've already done. It's yeah. you know, it's there's, there's only Bowie can keep changing it. Yeah, it, it, it is absolutely but, the other one. But then there are the other albums with Bowie that I just didn't like. Yeah, I wasn't that keen on Diamond Dogs. Yeah. No. Well, his 80s work, really, let's face it. Um, Tonight and Never Let Me Down was the two which were a bit tricky. But, um, yeah, it's it's still within the narrative of Bowie, even his 60s stuff, which is pretty awful. I mean, it's kind of interesting in the sense that it was kind of like, you were yeah. making this at the same time, Jimi Hendrix, The Doors, The Beatles, yeah. The Stones, The Kinks. You, yeah. you were bringing this record out. Why? You were, yeah, you were bringing out, you know, yeah, laughing gnome and the Beatles are doing you know, magical yeah. mystery tour. Yeah, in the same year. Yeah, no, I, I find that kind of fascinating. And yeah, who bought it? Well, not many probably. About paper houses on a hill. Do you know what I mean? 
all in the same year. It's like, wow, that's weird. Yeah. Yes. That is weird. Yeah. Needed take something so look so when you were good so you did build up quite a, a phenomenal roster in this kind of the late 80s and 90s didn't you with you know like my our favorites let's face it the darling buds came along yeah, yeah uh darling buds came to me through the three johns uh, uh who uh i know his first name's john i can never remember his second name who had seen them at tj's in newport and basically told me to get in touch with them. So I did, and I got a cassette and immediately loved it. And seriously, I think we just, we became aware of them in November. We'd signed them by December. They were in the studio over Christmas and Shame On You was recorded and released in February. Yeah, because I know they were one of those. I remember John Peel playing them, and then sort of even had his like, oh, "If you want to book this band, here's the address, or get in touch with them," as John Peel used to do. So, yeah. and uh, and at the same time, there was the the primitives as well had come out, and so we were very excited with these. Well, we had uh, we had the buds, and my mate Wayne had the primitives, <laughs> and so we were working them both at the same time. Right, yeah. and I'm sure most shops didn't know which one was which. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly, they had quite a similar sound, didn't they, actually? Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, so, yeah, that, that, uh, that was a, a great time. Yeah, we had some good fun. And Henry Normal. How did you, how did you come across Henry Normal and, and release The Ostrich Man? Uh, that one was weird. Yeah, even for me, that was a weird one. Uh, it came about because I went to see a band that we signed, a band called Dig This Drill, who were doing this kind of very Sheffield eclectic, industrial, electro type of thing, right? Uh, and he was a friend of of one of them from, I think he, I think, and I might be wrong, but I think he'd been to Sheffield University. So he was a friend of one of the guys in the band. And I met him at a gig. And yeah, and I talked to him like, like you do. And he said that he was uh, performing in Nottingham and I went down to see him. And he was really good in a very kind of John Cooper Clark type of way. Yes. All right. Uh, and so he said, well, will you put an album out? And I thought, well, I don't really know. I mean, are we, you know, we're not really known for doing poets, do you know what I mean? And, and comedy. But then uh, there'd been Attila the stockbroker and Jules the poet. So did you feel a little bit like, well, there is a bit of a thing going with poets. Well, Everyone loves a ranty poet. Yeah, yeah, the bottom line was, yeah, he got the album recorded. Yeah. Right, he'd just recorded all his gigs. So all we had to do was actually put it into a studio and do some after production, and, you know, make it make all the different tapes sound like it was one performance and you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and put a little booklet with it. And uh, so we did it. Uh, and it sold 12 copies. <laughs> <laughs> 
Bloody hell. How many did you give away as P, you know, on the PR front? Uh, I think, yeah, I think we must have given, yeah, 200 was the normal PR run, yeah, and I think we sold 12, yeah. Nice. Uh, that's the same, yeah, and all the rest of that stock disappeared when Red Rhino went bust. Which is a shame, because now on eBay you could sell it for £40 of a shot, couldn't you? Yeah, yeah, and, and now it is selling for an enormous amount. I, in fact, I even had a guy in Manchester, I don't actually know, Facebooked me and thanked me. He says, I managed to get hold of a few of these and I'm selling them for 40 pounds a pop. Anymore. And I went, no, mate, I ain't even got one. <laughs> Seriously, I didn't even I've not even got one myself. Yeah. And when Cherry Red bought native back, yeah, I had to give them hand over the masters and things. And it's like we haven't got it. I don't know where it is. Well, have you got a copy of the album? No. Nope. But you had the mark. You've got the master tape. No. Oh. Haven't got anything. I've no idea where they are. Funny. So is it the case? I mean, just slightly. Then what happens? Because obviously at that stage, you know, we you, you were still doing your thing. There'd been grunge, and then that well, obviously by the third Nirvana album, we got a bit bored, haven't we? Let's face it. And then you feel a bit guilty because then he dies. And then we have Britpop. So how were you kind of coping with these kind of like, oh my God, what's coming next? Uh, you listen to the music that comes through the door, right? And if you do that, you're listening and you go to, and I spent a lot of time at, in nightclubs looking at bands, right? Or being with a band and then seeing other bands. Right. So, and you get to know people whose opinion you, you trust. So, for instance, there were, there's a whole host of bands that we didn't sign. Yeah. And if we'd have signed those bands as well, yeah, it would have been an, an amazing label. Right. So, for all the bands that we didn't sign, yeah, I mean, there were bands like uh, the Sundays, yeah, that we chased all over England trying to sign mm. and were never able to. Um, I can't remember the name of, uh, oh, I, can, I can see the people, I can't think of the name, Lush. Lush. Yeah. A friend of mine was a writer, staff writer at the Melody Maker. Mm -hmm. And he saw this band and he rang me and said, Kevin, you must come and see this band. And I went to see them and was like, yeah, all right, yeah, we can do this. This would fit. Mm. Right. And they wanted to sign to us. Yeah, the deal was all ready to go. And then uh, 4AD stepped in and offered them 10 grand cash. God. And, and yeah, we just couldn't do that at that moment in time. Yeah, we were, uh, it was just as Red Rhino had gone bust, so cash was tight. Yes, they were, they did go on to great things for a while. Yeah, and yeah, they'd, like you say, they did two albums and they were good. Uh, and I spoke to the band and I said, look, you know, I can't, I can't compete, but we want to sign with you. The two girls wanted to sign. The drummer wanted the money. And uh, so I said, look, you know, if I was you, I'd take the money. Yeah. And for a while, the talk was that I would manage them. 
yeah, we'd sign them to the four AD and, and then I would take over management, but that actually didn't happen. Um, so yeah, lots of stories like that. Yes. And um, when you, I mean, obviously you must've been bumping into other people like, you know, Alan McGee, Creation Records. That started in the eighties with people like the Jasmine Minx and indie stuff, very indie, and then gone, gone into My Bloody Valentine. And then, yeah, and then yeah, yeah. so, so yeah, when you, um, did you, how many times did you cross with Alan? Not in a nasty uh, way, but in a nice not way. times at all, actually. Uh, I knew, I knew his partner, his business partner, a lot better. Is that Jerry? Or no? Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it was either Jerry or Mark. I can't remember his name now. But at the time, I would speak to him on a regular basis. But um, Alan McGee was very close with Rough Trade Records. Right? And Rough Trade Records and I had a kind of, without ever falling out, we had this kind of animosity because I think they believed wrongly but they actually did believe that i was part of red rhino and actually was totally owned by red rhino right and they had a massive argument with red rhino so i kind of got you know fell into they saw me as being red rhino mm. the end of red rhino basically right so um but yeah i mean alan and i did uh, meet occasionally yeah uh there's a famous meeting in Madrid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I can tell you what, what he actually said to me, but it was quite funny. Did they want? Did he want drugs? He did want drugs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> can you find anyone who's got any drugs, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> actually, yeah, I can. <laughs> oh. This is my friend Juan, he'll sort you out. Good <laughs> <laughs> dealer to the stars, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, that was, that was amusing. Yes. So how uh, were your 90s? Because obviously the, the kind of the Britpop period came, which slightly surprised more me because I didn't really see it. I enjoyed it. And obviously Jarvis gets his moment of 15 minutes and a bit more. Well, yeah, I mean, and again, that was one of those stories. We were, uh, we were, yeah. Obviously, I've known Jarvis from 78. And so Jarvis rang me and said, he was with a label called Fire, and he hates them to this day. And mm. really, yeah. And I know Clive at Fire, and he's all right, but I can understand why, you know, I can understand why yeah, Jarvis wouldn't get on with him. Right? Uh, so he rang me and said, will you give me a deal? I went, yeah, of course I will. Yeah, not, don't even have to think about it. Yeah. Uh, and that was going to happen. And again, it all got progressed. And uh, then Rough Trade stepped in and took over his management and got him a major deal with a, yeah, and the rest is history. And yeah, and I'm pleased for him, you know. Yes. Did he sign for Ireland in the end? I have no idea. I've got, yeah, I seriously don't know. Oh, I have spoken to him, you know, we've spoken since, and we're both big Sheffield Wednesday fans, so we do, yeah, do communicate, but... Yes. Uh, so, but, yeah, so your 90s, apart from Jarvis, did you... Well, a lot of people don't know this, and possibly you don't know this, but I had another label 
I had a label called Ozone. And Ozone was a dance label. Right? Yeah. Because we were doing marketing for other labels apart from ourselves, we did a lot of the early Chicago house. Was that on FRR records, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, but we actually were doing the Chicago house, which were imports. So this is before you know, FFRR actually got involved and before um, the Mute Dance label got involved. So we were right on the tip of that. And then we produced and signed a couple of other artists. You know, basically, these dance bands just flooded us, you know, because Sheffield was one of the epicenters, right? And, you know, I'm having a meeting with bands like the Snapdragons at one o'clock and Utah Saints at three. Nice. Right? And so, we, you know, Ozone was formed and we put out, you know, our first raft of releases and they skyrocketed. So that whole 90s to 93 dance boom, we were, yeah, there was Ozone and Network were the top two labels in the country. Who was the other one in Sheffield though called, is it Mo? God, there was another Warp. Warp came along after us. They, came, they actually came after. Warp, when we closed the offices in, in, in Sheffield, Warp actually, rang me up and said, guess what we've got? We've got your, we've got your officers. All right. <laughs> was there another label called Mr. Something though? Mr. Mo, no, I can't remember now. There was Mo's Records, um, who were a London-based Caribbean distributor who got really heavily involved in the distribution of records. And there was, um, there was another big distribution, um, that were run by a guy called Mo uh, and, a, and another friend of mine called Ronnie Anderson. They ran it and I can't remember what I was called. Oh my God, so they really, so you captured the, the ecstasy generation a bit there, didn't you? We, we did really well. The, the only problem with that was it was all 12 inch. Right, yes. so there were no album sales. And the other problem was there were no bands. <laughs> we had we had loads of DJs, you know, sending tracks in, but there were no tours, there were no, you know, so unless you had somebody like the Utah Saints who went on to become an identifiable brand, mm. right? It was a lot of the yeah, you know, a lot of those artists were very, you know, nobody knew who they were. No, because there was another label at that time called, is it Brian Carter Music, BCM, which had that Italian sort of sound that came out. And again, yeah. they, were just, they were just, you know, they were just singles and then they put a compilation. That's all you needed. You did, definitely didn't need the album by us. Well, we, we did. I mean, I'm not complaining because the singles were selling eight, ten thousand straight out. Yes. I mean, I remember uh, Securitor delivering probably four or 5,000 singles in the morning and collecting them by at four o'clock and they'd all sold. Every single unit had gone. 
God, it was a it was a glorious time for selling stock, wasn't it? Yeah, it it was really you know it was and it was fun. That's the it was fun and, and we you know and I actually handed ozone over to a guy called Pat Scott, who was one of the DJs who probably more than anybody really you know released more tracks on ozone than any other artist. Yes, wow. uh, he was a bit down on his luck, and I wasn't actually releasing dance music. And I said, "Well, why don't you look after the catalogue?" And he's now releasing, you know, making new releases and it's doing okay. Fantastic. It will, it will never be the same because it was, you know, just that three years snapshot of time. But yeah, he's doing okay. Nice. So then, as as the night, so what was what was the sort of with those? What so were you with Native in the Britpop period? Was that starting to sort of were you starting to? We were. We. We survived the crash of Red Rhino and Rough Trade. Um, the ozone period kept us financially viable. And so we were putting money back into new bands, but then Pinnacle went bust. All right. So I think over the period of time, there was something like six distribution companies all went bust on us. You know, one after the other, you know, basically one a year. Mm, that's yeah, yeah. Uh, Rough Trade, Revolver, Red Rhino, Pinnacle, Pacific, yeah, uh, Moe's Music, yeah, one after the other all went down owing us money. And it just got to the point where it's like, this is becoming really difficult. Yeah, there's too many sleepless nights, really. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, we did start, yeah. You know, we did continue to put albums out. We did continue to work with bands, but on a much lower level. You know, the indie trade had been decimated. It wasn't there anymore. Mm. So it, it was really just selling to, you know, a couple of dozen good shops, right? So we did continue, and, and right up until probably, what, 90... Well, probably to about 2008, to be fair. We were still putting records out. Uh, but they became less and less frequent, and, and we worked with fewer and fewer bands. And we started uh, actually um, doing live events and, and just promoting bands at gigs, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, right, so we moved into that. Uh, we developed the publishing side of what we do. And that's, to be fair, that's the only part of the industry I've still got left. So when did Red, uh, when did Cherry Red do, do the business? Uh, um, where are we now? Uh, 2019, Christmas, 2000, and, well, 2018, Christmas. Right. So you went, this is it. Well, it's a time where I'd, I'd been ill. I'd just moved to Scarborough. I was feeling better, but not that well. Yeah, better yeah. than I was, but, you know, it was time. Yeah, they, they said, look, we'll, you know, and they made a very good offer. And it's like, yeah, do you know what? This is the right time. So when you when you sell a label, do you, apart from Henry Normal, is, do you just say, look, is, here's all the kind of masters and... and yeah, basically, the... you are selling the rights. All right, so I'm selling the catalogue. So... We don't really have that much stock left because, you know, it disappears. Uh, but we still own 
the legal rights and we still have the master tapes uh, and therefore we transferred those to Cherry Red. Yeah, and do they go, to go through it and say, that's good, that, oh, where's the Henry Norman? You go, well, frankly. Uh, they were obviously interested in, a, you know, in, in fact, careful what I say, right? They wanted a specific period of the label, right? And therefore we sold them that period. And the period after that, we basically ceased trading and returned all the rights to the artists. Right. So there's a certain period of time in which they have acquired the rights, uh, but only that period. And I'm sure you could work out which period that is. Yeah. <laughs> and the period after that is, you know, those artists have been, you know, have yeah they now own their own rights yeah so yeah which, which is how it should be anyway the artist should own their own stuff from day one that's how it should be yes well i know talking to i think it was the guy from the very very things who's who was on fire records and you know he's not happy yeah. bunny really yeah and that's exactly where jarvis was with with Clive as well, you know what I mean? I know Clive, I think Native and Fire were of a similar stature as far as labels, you know, as far as the, the artists were signing. Uh, a number of Fire artists wanted to sign to Native, you know, Jarvis, Blue Aeroplanes, you know, there was a whole host of bands that had been developed under Fire that actually, now we want to come to you, All right? Uh, but yeah, again, it was just timing, and yeah, you know, when everything, when the industry collapses, you can't keep going, and you can't just keep signing bands. Yes, right. So yeah, whilst I yeah, I deluded myself that we'd survived, and we did, but we were never the same force again. Financially, we didn't have the money. Um, you know, when you get a bank manager turn up at your house and say, I want £30,000 and I want it by Friday. Yeah, that's not a good thing. And you can't do it. You know, I just laughed. It's like, yeah, great. Yeah. And where do you think I'm going? Oh, you could sell your house. And, you know, of course, the missus is not happy. So then you get divorced and then you get, yeah. And the whole thing kind of just takes on like the world. Yeah, and unre it becomes unreal. Yes, well, I can imagine, yes, too many sleepless nights is not much fun, is it, really? Yeah, but on a high note, you know, we had some glorious times, right? Uh, we, you know, I can tell stories about bands, yeah, you know, and funny stories that just go on forever. I can tell stories about uh, A&R men, uh, you know, who are, all seem to be called uh, Tristan, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there's an one A&R man, right? He said to me, Kev, uh, you can drive, can't you? I went, yeah. He says, uh, will you take my car up north for me and get some miles on it? I went, why? He says, oh, I'm getting into trouble for not doing enough driving. And I went, okay. And he says, well, I will, but it's a bit dodgy, isn't it? And I went, no, no, it'll be all right, it'll be all right. Just, you know, I just want petrol receipts and some, some miles on the clock. So, 
it took me to the car park and this is one of those really expensive secure car parks in Soho you know, which must cost, you know, even then it must have been costing, you know, 30, 40, 50 pound a week, right? And there's this car absolutely covered in dust. Yeah. And I said, when was the last time you drove this? He says, I can't drive. <laughs> <laughs> right. he'd, he'd been given the job on the condition that... He, you know, he could drive because they were giving him a company car. And he got the company car and they'd, they'd parked it and given him the keys and he'd never moved it. It had been there two years. It had been there two years, never been driven. You know, human resources are going, where's your petrol receipts? Where's your mileage log? Right, and it's like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> And I says, what do you mean you can't drive? He says, I passed my test. <laughs> Look, yeah. that, that was a major, still is one of the major labels in the world. Never checked that the AR man actually could have a, you know, actually had a driving license. But I suppose in the job interview, he said, yeah, fine, that's okay. And they went, oh, yeah, of course. You know, that's Nobody, one. Nobody ever followed it up. No. Yeah. Here's the car. Yeah, that's what I mean about money not mattering to these people. Here's a car. Just leave it in in a car park. I mean, somebody's got to be looking at the bills from the car park. You know, it's like, where are all these bills coming from for this car that's never moved in two years? <laughs> oh, dear. dear. So, yeah, lots of stories like that. Uh, yeah, great nights, you know, uh, BAFTAs. Brits, yeah, managing directors jumping in swimming pools in the suits, so all those kind of silly, silly things that you associate with the music industry, and some really great stories and some really good friends. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. You must be aware that in the last few years, there's been a lot of documentaries coming out on that period of music, especially in, I suppose, the punk period. But, you know, I sort of noticed that The Wedding Present had a film and The Go-Betweens and The Chills and, um, you know, Creation. And there was a guy who was in Mother Earth. There was a new, you know, film that, that came out recently as well. So it's a kind of a period that's kind of been re-examined a bit. And there's been various books that have also been published recently. So I think, I think life happens and then we all keep going on and then you have the time when you can look back not necessarily with rose-tinted sunglasses but sometimes you look back and go, actually that was slightly better than I remember and actually some of the music that I missed the first time I'll now listen to and think oh this is a great band you know and um yeah, oh, yeah I mean I think some of the bands that I really love are bands that never made it all right there's one band that we released the band called the Steam Kings who you know, they were unfortunately one of those bands whose lineup broke up every week. Yeah. Uh, and they came from somewhere in Devon. And, and so they, people had to go away to work. So it was never stable. And as a result, we never really were able to break the band. But their albums were, you know, the Six Songs mini album, I think is a beautiful album. Right. And they went on to record with Epic. 
They did. The, the lead singer went on to record with Epic, yeah. He got he, he moved to America and got a deal with Epic. He's a crazy. What happened to Simon Young in the end? Did you ever know? Simon, I think Simon ended up uh, running his father's printing company. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So all this material, if this is if this is the material, will be coming out via Cherry Red. It's all available on the Cherry Red website. No. I don't. I'm not sure it will ever be remanufactured. Right. Right, uh, but it is all yeah. MP3s are available, I nice. believe. Yeah, and that that is yeah. It's one of my favourite native albums. Right, um, the Dawn Raids on Morality uh, by Snapdragons again. Yeah, you know, was rated as the yeah you know, album of the year in January by the NME. Of course, yeah, it's too long to wait till December where they actually decide on what the album of the year will be and everyone's forgotten about it but again that was a great album yeah their problem was the guitarist left the band the minute they finished recording my god it's a bit like the zombies and that album odyssey and oracle they did it and then they broke up didn't they and then went yeah and 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 they replaced the guitarist but that took six months so they missed the tour and and yeah just a series of little disasters and you know, so for all the bands that have the right opportunities and the door opens at the right time, it can also go the, the, the other way. And yes. some great, yeah, some great talent just slips through the net. I have to say, I'm gonna have to listen to Doll Boys on Futons now, aren't I? Oh no, that is a great track. That is a great track. It's yeah. a great title. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that is like, oh my God, what that is. Yeah. I met that guy in uh, in the offices of CBS. He was trying to get CBS to sign him and they wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And, and he followed me home. <laughs> God, that's a nice one. That's a nice one. So look, lastly, what, if you could have said something to an 18-year-old self starting out, I mean, is there some little bit of advice or wisdom that you would have thought, do this, but, you know, just... Okay. Uh, I, there is. Uh, my son is in the band um, and has just started his own label, and I told him not to. <laughs> I want to start my own label. There, I said, no, don't. You, you know, the the relationship between, yeah, you know, the relationship between you and the other musicians, even though you fall out with them, ultimately you still make because you're all working towards the same goal. Mm. minute you become the label you are the enemy everybody's pals but ultimately there is the wedding the the wedding's great the honeymoon's great but the divorce is coming and when the lawyers get involved it gets bitter and and nasty and yeah and people who you think are your friends turn out not to be and yeah and it's a hard life it's not yeah, so I, I actually told him not to do it, but he did, and he's doing really well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, it's, yeah, it's, as you can imagine, there's, I suppose there's the two things, aren't there? Well, several, there's, there's have band therapy, which I don't know if it works, but also just look at it as a good three years. And if, if you get to there and you still want to do another couple, fine, but sort of give yourself the permission to after three years to say let, let's or four years you know though I've got the five-year narrative to say you know shall we just 
be nice and walk away. I think the wedding present's a good, you know, it's like, you know the, all the guys from the wedding present have made some money. Some of them have gone on to have, you know, 25 year careers, 30 year careers, probably. Uh, others haven't done as well. Right? But they all made enough money to buy a house. And I think that's how you've got to do it. I mean, there's a band on, on Native called uh, Greenhouse. Now, they are an offshoot of the wedding present. John Parks was one of the founder members of the band. Mm. He fell out with other members of the band. But everybody who plays on those records is actually connected to the wedding present in some one way or another. Yeah, drummers come and play for John and then join the wedding present or the other way around. Mm -hmm. Right? And it was that incestuous. It really was. Yeah. Uh, but the two principals just couldn't talk and couldn't be in the same room because they were both songwriters and both singers. And it was about ego. Yes. Uh, so did you did you watch the wedding present George Best film that came out? I didn't. No, I've not seen that. I, I you know, I worked the album. And I know Gedge, and Gedge was actually present when I went to see the Darling Buds for the first time. Yes. Right? Oh, uh, yeah, he was, he, you know, me and him were sat next to it. Well, he was stood up there and I'm stood down here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we were stood next to each other watching them. And I think there were only eight people in the room. Right. Yeah, uh, a, a little pub in Hammersmith. That has since been knocked down. But then they still had a great sound and a good look. Oh, uh, yes, it was fresh. It was innocent. It was, uh, for me, it was always better live than, than when it became overproduced. Yeah, whatever. I can't remember what the label was they signed to. They signed to a major, didn't they? I think. They signed to CBS, yeah. Yeah. It was a bit like the first box. I mean, their first album, Boston Steve Boston on Vindaloo, was great, but the second album on Warners was or WEA was a bit. Mm, yeah, right. well, and I, I I do know the first. Yeah, I know, I know Becky. So, uh, uh, it's a small industry. That's the first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. there were you know there were only two hundred players. All right, so it's a very small industry. It's recently, I think over the last 10 years, it's got even smaller. And yeah, there are still some people, there, there are some sharks out there, but not many now. Yeah, it's, it's, there isn't enough money in it to attract them. Oh, blimey. Okay. Okay. That well, that's you, I think. <laughs> God, I hope it's you, because otherwise yeah. I'd be worried. That's all right. Well, look, this is Kevin. This is fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for this. I'm going to, um, yes, I'll let you go now, but thank you for your time. I'm glad that we managed to get this done. This is good. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, it's second time, obviously, yeah, uh, but I'm pleased you're happy. And, uh, yeah, that's yeah. good. I'm going to hit pause or, or stop recording. There you go. <clears throat> we had a cheeky conversation at the end of that. Anyway, look, um, a big thank you to Kevin Donahue to tell me all about life in music and native records and much, much more. This has been David Eastall.
The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can, you won't. But if you do, keep it nice and positive, otherwise don't bother. Also, all these interviews have been archived. Indeed, they have. And you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Check it out. Anyway, look, have a great week and stay safe.